0: Rumsfeld came to Boston. I shot him on the same stage where I shot Robert McNamara. And we sit on my interviewing machine, the Interatron. We sit staring at each other. This was one of the most self-deceived characters I've ever put in front of a camera. And I've had a lot of them over the years. Uh, I've interviewed mass murderers, Holocaust deniers, of every description. This was
1: destabilizing. Um, destabilizing for you as an observer, as an interviewer.
0: I would say it was certainly destabilizing for me, but I would submit it was also destabilizing for the country. <laughs>
1: Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by Errol Morris, director of The Unknown Known.
2: Reagan was up a floor above. I was with my wife, Joyce. I had a man glued at my hip, ready to tell me if Governor Reagan called and wanted me to be vice president. The press was filled with this excitement about the possibility of President Reagan selecting Gerald R. Ford. I was stunned at the thought. It's like sticking four hands on the steering wheel. You're going to end up putting the truck in the ditch. My phone rang. It was Governor Reagan. He said, Don, I want you to know that I've decided to have George Bush be my vice presidential nominee. I said, fantastic. I am so relieved that you decided not to have Gerald Ford. He said, oh, no, Don. Jerry and I decided together that it wouldn't be a good idea.
0: It seems to me that if that decision had gone a slightly different way, you would have been vice president and future president of the United States.
2: That's possible.
1: The Unknown Known is a film in which you talk to Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense. And I wonder, when did you first hatch the idea of corralling him and getting him to talk to you?
0: There are all these metaphors hatched and corralled. Don't go well for me together. You're absolutely right. Corralled horse, hatched chicken, some kind of
1: cognitive. Let's produce some more. How did you stalk your prey?
0: How did you hook this fish? It's hard to know why anybody does anything. It's hard for me to know why I do anything. Um, You know, I have this theory that. We know other people a lot better than we know ourselves. Much easier to figure out someone else's motivation than your own. Things, in my experience, take on some infernal logic of their own. Uh, I made the McNamara film, Fog of War, because there was some money left over. I was doing a television series, and I thought, I've always wanted to interview Robert McNamara. Um, You know, for my generation, the Vietnam War was a big thing. Demonstrations, the draft, tens of thousands of American deaths, a war that changed America's idea about itself. America came out of World War II. We're the good guys. Vietnam changed all that. And I didn't know whether McNamara would ever talk to me. So I called him up and he agreed. Uh, I think he thought that I was part of his book tour. He had just published a book called Wilson's Ghost. And so he agreed to do it. Uh, And the fog of war was a result. It's a strange interview. For the first hour, I thought he could get up at any time and leave. Uh, I hope I'm not causing you any kind of similar concern. Not at all. Oh, good. Um, But eventually, he settled in and we did over 20 hours of interviews.
1: At some point, he surely realized that this was more than a book tour promotional.
0: Yes. He realized it the day before, a couple of days before, uh, he was to appear for the interview. He called me and said, I've been talking to a number of people that told me this is not a good idea, that uh, he shouldn't talk to me, made no sense, blah, 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 blah. He went on at enormous length. And I thought, okay, he's telling me he's not going to do the interview. And at the very end, he said, but I agreed to do it, so I'll do it. A friend of mine hearing this story said, yeah, that's the story of Vietnam. So having done that movie and then followed it up with a movie about Abu Ghraib, Standard Operating Procedure, and of course Rumsfeld's name came up again and again and again and again during the course of making that movie. It's a, he was Secretary of Defense um, at the time of Abu Ghraib. I thought, why not? It's the salt and pepper shakers, if you like, the match set. Two disastrous wars. Rumsfeld came to Boston. I shot him on the same stage where I shot Robert McNamara, and, coincidentally, the same stage where I shot Lindy England, one of the bad apples who was prosecuted for taking and appearing in pictures in Abu Ghraib.
1: Was there any resistance from his camp? Because you'd think that knowing of your existence, knowing that you had made the fog of war, presumably having some sense of what you were trying to accomplish, The implicit statement you're making by pairing him with the film The Fog of War, then surely you'd think that he would have been a little apprehensive about it, or certainly people around him would have been apprehensive about it. Why do you think? Well, you know, I'm purely speculating, but uh, when you look at the McNamara film, there is this idea of a you know, this deep sense of guilt uh, and uh, becoming unburdened uh, of this guilt. And so if I'm Rumsfeld, or if I'm someone around him, surely I'd think that, well, Morris wants to pull off the same feet uh, and treat these as parallel circumstances, when in fact, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that Rumsfeld might have a a quite different reading on what he had done. So, you know, I I would think that that would give him some pause.
0: Very early on in this process, I wrote him a letter. I sent him a copy of The Fog of War. And I said explicitly that I did not see this as Fog of War II. I did not see him as being like Robert McNamara. I thought the historical circumstances were different, different time, different person, uh, and that I wanted this film, this current film, The Unknown Known, to stand in its own right. Uh, Maybe I've just caused trouble for myself by calling them the salt and pepper shakers. It's hard not to think of the films as paired. paired. Uh, You could even think of them as a trilogy with the Abu Ghraib uh, movie as well. But indeed, they are very, very, very different men. They couldn't be more different.
1: Well, it's also in terms of your relationship to both of them in generational terms. McNamara was someone who is from a different generation, yet uh, his actions uh, and the kind of perception of him, his character in the wider world, uh, was very influential for you uh, as someone coming of age. Tell me about Rumsfeld uh, and, you know, he's, Presumably, you know, he grew up in very different circumstances, et cetera. But did you find him to be a kind of relatable figure uh, in terms of the cultural experiences he had had? Uh, Were there ways that you tried to get kind of some entry point into his way of thinking?
0: Really easy to relate to Rumsfeld. That's not the problem. Harder to relate to McNamara. Uh, McNamara was not a politician. Strictly speaking, he came out of business. He was... Um, the first non-Ford president of the Ford Motor uh, Company, and then appointed by Kennedy uh, to become Secretary of Defense. Uh, Rumsfeld was a politician.
1: He was a four-term congressman. And also a successful business executive later in life.
0: Much later, (laughs) but initially a politician, um, a congressman, uh, then... Um, an appointee to one cabinet-level position
1: after another by Richard Nixon. And known as a wunderkind as well, I mean, known as this bright young man who was, uh, you know, waging the war on poverty and much else. It seems that his early profile was quite different from the way we've come to think of him.
0: Yes and no, because the early profile is one who uh, incredibly ambitious... Um, Nixon clearly loved him. Uh, I think Nixon saw him as a mini-me, that here was someone perhaps as unscrupulous and ambitious as himself.
1: So loved him and hated him, right?
0: I think more love than hate. The people around Nixon, uh, the Haldemans, the Ehrlichmans, the Kissingers, etc., perhaps liked him a little bit less.
1: And it's easy to see why.
0: But he had this extraordinary upwards trajectory. Um, And he seemed to miss uh, the big compromising disasters. He was sent uh, uh, to Brussels as the US ambassador to NATO. at the time of Watergate. Nixon resigns, he becomes Ford's chief of staff, and then he and his assistant, let me see if I can recall the assistant's name, Richard B. Cheney.
1: Perhaps you've he heard it.
0: Take control of the government. We did it twice! We did it once in the Ford administration, and then again, uh, some 30 years later uh, in the George W. Bush administration.
1: Well, one thing I find interesting and an interesting point of tension is that when we think about Rumsfeld um, and the Iraq War, one view is that Rumsfeld had this great ownership. He was certainly one of the most prominent public faces uh, of the invasion of Iraq and what had followed. Yet it's also true that there were certainly many people within the Bush administration, including some who had pressed for the so-called surge strategy later on, who actually felt that Rumsfeld was someone who was dragging his feet, someone who didn't have full buy-in, who didn't actually want to have a heavy footprint in Iraq or whatever else. Uh, Did you get the sense that Rumsfeld felt real ownership of the Iraq war? Because it occurs to me that, you know, does he simply think of himself as someone who is executing the designs of others Uh, and doing it as best he could, rather than someone who really believed in the project. I like this term, light footprint. It's like the light
0: footprint of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. They invaded the country. That's not a light footprint.
1: Unless I'm missing something here. I absolutely agree with you, but of course there were debates, right, about strategy. There were people who felt that Rumsfeld, you know, wasn't, Uh, as heavy footprint a guy as he might have been?
0: I am less interested in that sort of thing than others. The first day that I went to Washington to meet him, he invited me to his offices in Washington. He asked me, would you like to hear me uh, being interviewed by others? I said, sure. So we sit in the conference room, this long table. Um, The journalists are on speakerphone from Fort Bliss, Texas. Uh, Rumsfeld's to my left. I have a nice cup of coffee in front of me. And the journalists ask the same questions. It could be scripted. They say, did you really think there were WMD in Iraq? I don't know what they expect they're going to hear as an answer. Um, Did you feel that the size of the force invading Iraq was appropriate? Was it large enough? Uh, General Shinsheki, this, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Did you feel that there was adequate plans for the aftermath of the invasion? Now, these are all supposed to be, I guess, gotcha questions, you know. (laughs) Um, But the answers were pre-packaged. I could be standing in front of a vending machine pressing buttons you know, hoping for whatever, the M&Ms or the caramel clusters. And it was a bore. And even beyond being a bore, nothing really was learned. Um, Somehow the idea, if you hunker down And you ask this again and again and again and again. Maybe if I had access to enhanced interrogation techniques, including waterboarding, I could have made progress, or someone else could. But I resolved, I don't want to do that. You can't make me, ain't gonna. uh." You do things in the same way, one thing you do know is that you get the same
1: results, usually. Hmm. So you tried to come at him from a different kind of an angle? Yes, absolutely.
0: I have my own crazy definition of art for what it's worth. Um, Here's the definition. Set up a series of arbitrary rules and then follow them slavishly. So what are the arbitrary rules here? You only interview one person No interviewing 10, 15, 20 people. Only one person, uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, Get access to the memos. Here's a man who memorialized everything. He wrote some 20, 30, 40, 50,000
1: memos. Many of which were very stylishly and entertainingly written
0: stylishly and entertainingly written. Uh, There he was with his dictaphone recording, a a steno pool, transcribing. And since he had recorded over uh, all of the original recordings, he just kept using them again and again and again, all that was left were the transcriptions, but he offered to read them. You offered to reenact, if you like, uh, the memos uh, on film. Uh, Use the memos as a spine for the movie. I kept calling it history from the inside out. It's not an external history. You're not asking so much external questions, like was the force large enough? Um, uh, Were the preparations good enough? It's directed to a different set of questions altogether. It's the question, what was he thinking? What was going on inside of his head? At each moment. Well, at some moments. How does he want to explain himself to others? How does he see himself? What image does he want to project? What is he trying to say in these memos? Um, Different
1: kind of movie altogether. What image he's trying to project, that strikes me as as very important as here is someone who had really mastered the art of inside the beltway intrigue. Uh, and a lot of that is about managing appearances. A lot, about, a lot of that is kind of putting pressure at certain moments and not at others, knowing when to be in Brussels and when not to be in Brussels. So I, I wonder about your sense of him um, as someone aware of the image he's presenting to others.
0: A person clearly aware of the image he's presenting to others. A person interested in controlling the image that he's presenting to others and, if you like, presenting to history. This may seem contradictory. It probably is, thinking about it. A person interested in controlling the image projected to others and yet, in many ways, incredibly
1: unaware of himself. Does that make sense? I don't know. He does project in the film... I think it's true. He projects this incredible serenity, and I think that that's... Really? Yeah. Serenity. Yeah, and I think that that's something that is going to frustrate and perhaps even anger some of the people who are going to watch this film. He seems like someone who is very much at peace with himself, um, and I have to say that came across as quite impressive in its own way. You wouldn't describe
0: it that way the serenity of Donald Rumsfeld. I would say the complacency of Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, The unflappability of Donald Rumsfeld. The removal of Donald Rumsfeld.
1: Tell me about the distinction.
0: Well, you make him sound like the Buddha.
1: (laughs) And I don't think that's quite right. Some of it is complacency in the face of what he characterizes as implacable, intractable problems. Uh, the title of the film, The Unknown Known, <laughs> you know, just this, this weird philosophizing that he engages in, which, which actually seems to contain much wisdom. Just the idea that the evidence of absence isn't the absence of evidence or vice versa. Um, now, I can see why that might seem very frustrating. You used the a hand, very... Used well, I, a, I, I flipped it. My
0: no, accident. no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. You used a word here, which I think is very, very, very important and relevant. It's the word seems. Uh, seems to be profound. Seems to be deeply philosophical. Um, when in fact it's just evasive? I would say that it's evasive at best, um, pernicious. I sort of like the, the term deeply pernicious. You mentioned absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. It's a great example um, of uh, one of Rumsfeld's slogans that uh, is deeply pernicious. I've just done a series of essays for The New York Times. It's up as we speak on the opinion pages online of The Times. Um, And I investigated many of these phrases, these quasi uh, or pseudo-philosophical notions that he paraded uh, in front of the American public. Absence of evidence is an evidence of absence was first used by astronomers. Carl Sagan popularized it in connection with the search for extraterrestrial intelligent life somewhere out there.
1: Great artists
0: Steele. So, have we uh, heard any... Uh, signals from outer space that suggest uh, that they exist mm, not so much does that mean they don't exist given the enormity of you know the universe properly considered it is a pretty big place you know out there um, so Carl Sagan uses it for a very, very specific argument uh, in a very specific context. Donald Rumsfeld takes it and applies it to Iraq, uh, WMD. UN weapons inspector goes into Iraq and goes to places where he would expect to find biological or chemical weapons and finds nothing. Absence of evidence or evidence of absence. The example I like to give is someone tells you there's an elephant in the room. Uh, so you open the door, and you look in the room. Uh, you can't see an elephant. You, you Look in the cupboards, closets. Maybe you get down on your knees and you peek under the bed uh, n- no elephant um, is that absence of evidence or evidence of absence uh, what happens is that the use of these terms seemingly thank you very much for using that word My pleasure. seemingly profound are confusing just imagine Uh, So you have the Airedale president in the Oval Office, um, you know, reading these snowflakes that are coming in from Donald Rumsfeld uh, at the Pentagon. And so he gets the snowflake that says, uh, uh, Mr. President, sir, um, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence and he's thinking about the invasion of iraq i think this is bad (laughs) this is really 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 bad you seem to be making an argument for something but you're making an argument for nothing
1: you're Well, that's how you wind up a bureaucratic survivor, right?
0: I don't know. I've never been trapped in any gigantic bureaucracy. Um, I'm not sure that I'm the kind of guy who could survive. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm the kind of guy who would not survive. if what you're asking is, in order to be a bureaucratic survivor, you have to really say nothing, engage in double talk, um, lapse into just gobbledygook, impenetrable gobbledygook, uh, for a good part of the day. Maybe yes.
1: Well, one thesis is that Donald. But is that
0: what we is that what we really want in our democracy? Isn't
1: there's something better than we could imagine? Well, one thesis is that Donald Rumsfeld is the dynamic leader, which is how he presented himself. Uh, you know, when things were going well during the global war on terrorism, taking credit for it, taking victory laps, uh, having these exchanges with the press uh, in which he was, you know, delighting uh, his fans at home uh, by seeming cleverer than they. Uh, another- he was incredibly popular. We oh, shouldn't forget about absolutely. this. In the early years, 2002, 2003, he was, you know. Absolutely, he was a celebrity. Uh, of sorts. Uh, another view is that he's someone who saw which way the world was going, saw which way the administration was going. Someone who you know didn't think he was likely to stop it had he intervened, didn't wasn't so inclined to stop it uh, and didn't. And so again, was taking credit when it was appropriate to take credit and then later on distanced himself. I was really struck by the fact that he, he said that he wished that his letter of resignation uh, after the horrors uh, of uh, facing military detainees in Iraq had been revealed, uh, that he wishes that uh, his offer of resignation had been accepted. Well, let's have a little clarification here. I
0: got him to read the Haynes Memo, this infamous memo where they detail so-called enhanced interrogation techniques to be used at Guantanamo. Uh, He reads it, He stops in the middle of it, almost as though he's amazed by what he's reading, and says, good grief, that's a pile of stuff. Um, Then he's confronted by the fact that these techniques quote unquote migrated to Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, there's no question that they did uh, those MPs that found themselves uh, at Abu Ghraib in the fall of 2002, uh, the Megan Ambules, Lindy England, Sabrina Harman's. The day that Sabrina Harman first started taking pictures at Abu Ghraib, she was a documentary photographer. She walked on the hard site, she saw people in stress positions, naked, standing for hours on end, hooded, the whole nine yards. This is not something she orchestrated. This is something that she observed. Rumsfeld denies to me that these techniques ever migrated from Guantanamo to Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, I read to him the Schlesinger report, a report by a former Secretary of Defense,
1: saying they did. And then he kind of looks goes, at me. is a man who ought to be taken seriously and uh, to whom uh, you know he, he offers some deference, it seems, some respect.
0: Indeed he does. Uh, basically, he's been confronted with the fact that what he says is wrong and he just, would I describe it? I'm not even sure how I would describe it. Does he punt? Uh, What does he do? He just says, I'd agree
1: with that. I'd agree with that. Well, that's in a way something that's somewhat alarming, that you, by virtue of having made a film, by virtue of having followed this closely, seemed to have known more about some of what was happening uh, under Rumsfeld's tenure than Rumsfeld himself did.
0: I think that's true. What's so surreal to me, he talks about the pictures and he says, and there was nudity involved. The scandal. He ordered it! In the Haynes memo, There's a Alice in Wonderland Looney Tunes' quality to all of this. Um, can the person in charge know nothing? Could he be so deeply clueless? Um, can he live in some strange bubble of his own devising? Is he nuts? What the hell is going on here? The easy answer and the preferred answer is he's just lying. You know, he's a tricky customer. He's he's, uh, adept, adroit at manipulating people and providing answers that are not answers. Uh, I've felt something different. And don't get me wrong, I can be as delusional as the next guy. Um, I felt that this was one of the most self-deceived characters I've ever put in front of a camera. And I've had a lot of them over the years. Uh, I've interviewed mass murderers, Holocaust deniers, uh fantasts of every description. This was
1: destabilizing. Um, Destabilizing for you as an observer, as an interviewer.
0: I would say it was certainly destabilizing for me, but I would submit it was also destabilizing for the country. You suggested at the very beginning of this interview that Donald Rumsfeld was not gung-ho about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I would beg to differ. Uh, one of the memos that we show very early on in The Unknown Known, uh, Rumsfeld is talking about rearranging the map of the Middle East. And I remember when I first read this, I thought, you know, Errol, you, you were really unambitious. You never think in those terms. You never think about sending your panzer divisions across the Rhine or invading Russia during the winter or rearranging the map of the Middle East. Not yet. Um, A person who writes that way is, if you don't want to use the word gung-ho, is committed to a certain kind of intervention. Usually it's known as war. The memos are weird, many of them, because they're verbose. Some of them are laundry lists of stuff, so that if you provide a list of enough stuff, you know, you have this, that, and the other thing, something in them is going to be right. But if you look at them carefully, they reveal either wittingly or unwittingly, intentionally or unintentionally, they reveal something about the man. Uh, Rearranging the map of the Middle East is one example. Um, He argued with me. Uh, I've been the recipient of many Donald Rumsfeld snowflakes because I promised to show him various cuts of the movie as we went along and he could look at them and he could provide a critique of what he had seen. And so he he would look at the rough cut. Uh, He would write a snowflake to Errol Morris. Um, Things he liked, things he didn't like. Um, uh, He wanted me to emphasize that the policies of the Bush administration were no different than the policies of the Clinton administration. One and the same. And yet there's this memo at the very beginning of my movie, it's just sitting there where Rumsfeld is criticizing Clinton's policies. Uh, essentially, the policy of keeping Saddam mm. in the box, the no fly zones. And there is. And he talks about the deterioration of the no fly zone, quote unquote. He talks about the t- deterioration of the no fly zone, and he goes into this speech. Um, What am I going to say to the president when a plane goes down? Why did you put our pilots at risk?
1: What were you thinking? As if the enormity of that were the same as the enormity of invading a country.
0: Make no mistake, the policy before 9-11, not to mention after 9-11, the policy was completely different from the Clinton administration. Uh, Maybe Clinton signed something about regime change in Iraq, but his actions were not invasion, but mitigation. Policies of the Bush administration,
1: Uh, not just regime change, war. There's a point in the film when Rumsfeld talks about having met a soldier who had been gravely injured uh, and seemed to be uh, on the verge of death. And then he hears... My editor called it the old man crying scene. The old man crying scene. And what's really neat about this scene is that you know it turns out, lo and behold, uh, the young man winds up surviving. And it's funny that the old man crying scene is one that resolves so neatly uh, and I wonder, were there other old men uh, old man crying scenes in the film uh, that didn't make it in? Were there others in which uh, the outcome was not a happy one? Because that struck me as noteworthy, that this moment of regret uh, was tempered by the fact that, well, gosh, in this case, the guy lived. What moment of regret? Were you watching a different film? What moment of regret? The closest moment to a moment of regret might have been that, and if... What moment of regret? What is he regretting in that scene? Lamenting the fact that uh, someone had come close to death? I'm happy to concede that it wasn't a moment of regret.
0: Lamenting nothing. Feeling apologetic for nothing. The arguments with my editor about it. I have this occupational hazard when I'm editing a movie is I constantly show it to other people. Mm, so self-doubt, insecurity, whatever. I want to hear other people's opinions about what I'm doing. So I showed this scene to a number of different people. And one guy suddenly said to me, oh my God, he's talking about himself again. Now here's a scene where he and his wife go to Walter Reed Hospital. There's a soldier who is dying. He is told by his doctors that he does not have long to live. He's been horribly injured in the war. Um, Rumsfeld returns. Uh, The soldier is still alive and he learns that he will survive. Rumsfeld tears up and almost changes the topic completely to an encomium about America. America is such a
1: great country. Um, Modern medical marvels. It's a
0: story about
1: resurrection,
0: uh, triumph over death, survival it is in no way a story of regret it is in no way a story about death because what's forgotten completely in that story uh, is that this is one guy who lived and what about all those other guys that didn't Uh, At the end of this moment in the film, uh, I cut to gravestones as a reminder to myself and to the audience watching this film that the real story is somewhat different than the story
1: that he is telling. The story he's telling can be encapsulated uh, with uh, Stuff Happens, I guess the notorious phrase from that press conference when he was talking about the aftermath uh, of the fall of Baghdad. I have never ever heard
0: so many deeply inadequate explanations for things. So shallow, so uninformative, um, so empty. He's in the Oval Office. Helicopters are taking off from the roof of the embassy in Saigon. 58,000 American servicemen, millions of Vietnamese dead. I ask him, what did we learn from the war in Vietnam? He's there. He's there in the Oval Office with Gerald Ford, Henry Kissinger, tra-la-la-la-la. He's right there at the center, the epicenter of— That was a big part of his adult life. Um, what'd you learn? And his answer, some things work out, some things don't, that didn't. Very deep. That's what we learn uh, about Vietnam. I don't know. To me, this is a horror movie. Um, A deeply disturbing horror movie about a man who wielded just incredible power. He controlled the most powerful military apparatus in history and yet seemed singularly disconnected. Detached doesn't even seem the right word. Disconnected um, from what he is doing and who he is. I'm sure you're familiar with the diagnostic and statistical manual that psychiatrists use to uh, uh, classify mental disorders of one kind or another. And I thought of a new one in connection with Donald Rumsfeld, uh, which I called irony deficit disorder. Uh, The second day he was in my studio, He's describing his visit in 1983 to Saddam Hussein. At the end of the description he says, well, Saddam was idolized by everyone around him. There were statues everywhere. People kowtowed to him. Uh, School children bowed down. And in the end, and these are Rumsfeld's words, he became all pretend, all pretend. And we sit on my interviewing machine, the Interatron, we sit staring at each other for what seems to be, it's an interminable amount of time. And I'm looking at him because I'm wondering, surely, sir, you must realize that some people will think you're talking about yourself. But not him. There's just nothing really there. It's that crazy aluminum siding salesman who is so invested in selling you the aluminum siding that he doesn't really care about the product, he doesn't care
1: about you. It's just clinching the deal. One last thought. You mentioned the Interatron. And I wonder how you think about how the evolution of the technology of film has changed your work because it seems as though in creating the Interatron you hit upon this ingenious idea that you've pursued in a variety of different projects since but I wonder if there's been any other developments that have shaped the way you make movies endlessly um, movies
0: we all know have been just transformed by technology um, At one time, everything was shot on film. Now hardly anything is shot on film. I still love sprocket holes. Uh, Occasionally, I shoot on film, but less and less often. The quibbles now become, you know, which digital camera, which digital format. I made a film fast, cheap, and out of control, Uh, shot by Robert Richardson. And we used every single format imaginable. We shot on straight eight, super eight, 16, super 16, 35, 35 35-step printed video, blah, 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 blah. Um, Could never have edited this film except uh, on a digital editing machine. If you were using a flatbed, Chem or Steenbeck or Moviola, you could just never have done it. So it was a movie made possible by technology. And it keeps changing. It keeps changing more and more and more rapidly. I'm always using new and different cameras. I'm using new and different post-production techniques. It's an exciting time, actually, because the visual possibilities are much greater than they've ever been. And if you can root around and dig up enough money, you can still shoot on film as well. I do lots and lots and lots of commercials. I've done probably over a thousand commercials, and In commercials, there's still enough money to shoot on 35 if you really, really, really want to.
1: Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you.